All right, let's get into our study tonight. Take your Bibles and let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. I was going to do 22 through 27, and then I was looking at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and it's really, they're very connected, so I'm doing both of those sections tonight. Normally, I, I break things into smaller chunks, so here you're getting the reverse. I'm taking and putting them into a bigger chunk. And then we're going to look at this a little differently tonight. Um, we'll see if this works, but your first point isn't even really in the text, at least this text. The first point, when we get to it, we'll, we're going to be flipping back to Genesis, because what we have here, really starting in verse 9 of chapter 21, but... Uh, particularly starting in verse 22 and going on to chapter, uh, verse 22 of 21 and going on to chapter 22, verse 5, is a picture of paradise restored, paradise regained. Um, so the structure tonight will be a little bit like, well, let's look and see what we lost in paradise. So we'll look a little bit in Genesis 2 and 3, and then we'll flip back and I'm not going to necessarily go through this like I normally do, looking at one verse, then the next, and the next. But we're going to look at the way it's structured is we're going to see what is not in paradise restored and then what is in paradise restored. And we'll see if that works <laughs> as, a, as a structure for tonight. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, well, don't worry. Just try to follow along as if I'm singing the third verse of the song when I should be singing the second verse of the song. <laughs> All right, but we'll start uh, reading in chapter 21, verse 22, and I'll read until verse 5 of chapter 22. So John continues his vision and describing his vision of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall, be, there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of that tree were the, for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Okay, so there you have it, uh, the vision, if you will, of paradise restored, 
Uh, it's been what we've been looking at since we started chapter 21 with the new heavens and the new earth coming down and the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. And now John sees sort of what is sort of the glory of new creation. What is the splendor of the new creation? And what we see in this vision are a lot of things that not only point to some Old Testament prophets and prophecies that are being fulfilled, but also point us all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis. The river, uh, the, the tree of life, and all these things point back to the garden, the, the paradise that was lost at the very beginning. Uh, again, just a brief note on where we are and where we were. Last time we looked at verses 9 through 21 of chapter 21, uh, the vision of the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is described as the bride of the Lamb. It's described as the new city, the holy city coming down out of heaven. It is described and, and pictured as a cube, a perfect cube of 12,000 stadia on each side, length, height, and width. Um, and those dimensions, of course, call to mind the, the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, the temple, the, the tabernacle, the most holy place, which itself was a perfect cube. So in a sense, the New Jerusalem is, is a temple that, in a sense, fills all of new creation. The measurements, of course, and all of them are, are in... Um, uh, multiples of 12, so the 12,000 stadia, the 12 foundations, the 12 gates uh, named after the 12 tribes of Israel, the foundations named after the 12 disciples, the wall being 144 cubits high, 12 times 12. you got 12 all over the place. Again, this city is pictured as the people of God in glory with the Lord. Uh, you've got the vision here of the pearly gates and the street of gold, um, all these things just speak to the glory and splendor of the new creation. So now again, as, we said, as I said, when we come to this passage tonight, the one we're going to look at here, this really finishes, if you will, the, the, the visionary section. Because the rest of the book, from chapter 22, verses 6 to the end of the book, is more of a prologue or a postscript, if you will. Uh, we'll look at that, and then we'll be finished with the book. Um, but here, again, we're seeing the glory and splendor of new creation. We're seeing paradise restored. But not so much like we're back in Eden, okay? We're not back at Eden. We're better than Eden. We'll look at that, okay? Because Eden itself would have, even if Adam had, had succeeded in his test, Eden itself would still have to have been recreated and remade, just as Adam, who was made of dust, would have had to have been remade and recreated and reconstituted. So we'll look at all these things as we go through this passage. But what I want to do now is I want to look at Paradise Lost. So go all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. So not all the way to the beginning, but very close to the beginning. So we're going to double dip this one because at some point, you know, when we're done with Revelation, we'll go into Genesis and we'll look at these passages again in a different context, of course. But, but Genesis chapter 2. So before discussing what is restored in paradise, it's, I think it might be helpful just to see what was lost. And, 
And in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we're going to read through uh, verse 8 to verse 14. Uh, you're going to see here, God, after forming the man out of the dust of the earth, after breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, uh, we, we, we learn here that then God takes the man he created and breathed life into and places him in a garden that God himself planted. So look at chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So there you have the garden. God creates a garden in Eden. Okay, so Eden, first of all, the garden is not Eden. The garden is in Eden. Um, and it's eastward in Eden. So toward the east. You know, again, the, the, the directional uh, mention of the direction eastward is significant because whenever you see the way the temple is laid out, the way the tabernacle is laid out, its entrance always faces east. So in a sense what you have here is a, is a, a garden temple, right? It's, uh, there's another place in the Bible in Ezekiel 28, I believe it's verse 13 or 14, talks about how Eden is set upon a mountain. So you've got a mountain garden temple of God there where he makes Adam and places him into the garden. The garden is paradise. It's got all kinds of trees, grows all kinds of fruits. You also have two special trees, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You've got luscious rivers, rivers that, that supply uh, everything is needed for the garden. Uh, and the fact that it's on a mountain is kind of suggesting the fact that you've got the river flows out and it becomes four uh, rivers from there, so flowing down, uh, downhill, if you will. But you've got all this luscious garden, all of this beautiful rivers, and all these precious stones that are just all over the place in the garden here, in, in Eden. And Eden, the word Eden, in fact, is even derived from the Hebrew word that means like luxury or delight or, or paradise. So the word itself contains the notion of paradise. Eden is paradise. Eden is pristine. Eden is the best that this world ever had to offer. Okay? Eden is the best this world ever had to offer. Because after the fall, what happens? The ground is cursed. Right? When, when Adam sins and God pronounces his curse, he not only curses the serpent, he not only pronounces a curse on Eve, and he also pronounces a curse on Adam and tells Adam... Your labor will be hard. You will have to work hard for your food. You, the, the land will no longer just produce the food because it wants to. You will have to labor for it. And Paul talks about this in Romans 8 where he talks about how 
Even creation groans. Why does it groan? Because it has been subjected to futility by God. God cursed creation. Adam's sin brought a curse, not just on him, not just on Eve, not just on his progeny, but on creation as a whole. It's quite a sin, right? <laughs> it is quite the sin. Quite, I mean, but as R.C. Sproul likes to say, sin is cosmic treason against God. Adam failed to do what he was called to do. So Eden is the best this world ever had to offer. It doesn't get any better than Eden. In fact, it gets a lot worse after the fall. And God puts Adam in this garden. This garden, as we said, has everything needed. Every tree good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes and and good for food. And water, which is again symbolic for life, water is necessary for life. You have to have water and food. And this garden is filled with everything. Now, you have here in the midst of this garden two particular trees. The first one is the tree of life. Now, people discuss this and they debate this. Is this a real tree? Is this symbolic? Is it sacramental? I mean, I think it's a real tree, right? I mean, it's a real tree. I think there's a sacramental aspect to this tree that if if Adam were to eat this tree... Of course, the sacrament is a sign and seal that points to a greater reality. If he were to eat this tree, it would be symbolic or, or sacramental to the eternal life that is freely given to all who, at least at this point, would have obeyed had Adam obeyed. But notice when he fails, what happens? Well, the tree of life is barred from him. The tree of life is banned. He's no longer given access to the tree of life. And you, there's a couple of reasons. One, first of all, eternal life was, that was offered to him was taken away. But second... Some believe, and I think there's some more to this too, that had Adam eaten it in his fallen state, he would have been sort of confirmed in that state for, forever with no hope of any kind of redemption. So lest he take, that's what, in fact, that's what God says, lest he stretch out his hand and take of the tree of life, let us cast him out. So you got this tree here, you also have the other tree. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the, the test tree, right? This is the tree that would test Adam's obedience. Again, I don't think that literally eating the fruit gave him, you know, oh, I don't know what good and evil is. Now I take a bite. Now I know what good and evil is. Maybe experientially he knows what good and evil is now. Uh, but the, the, the tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil is a test for Adam. God said, you've got every tree in here. There are 9 million trees. You can eat from 8,999,999 of them. Just don't eat that one. Don't eat from that one. That's your test, Adam. That's your test to see whether you will obey me as your creator. So you have the test tree, the knowledge of good and evil. But the point is that this, the garden, is paradise. It is paradise. God placed Adam in his garden temple, as it says here, to tend and to keep it. That word keep it literally means, can mean to guard it. Right? And that's what the priests were to do of the tabernacle. They were to, in a sense, guard the tabernacle as well. And here Adam, as a priest king in Eden, is told, you need to tend the garden and you need to guard it. You need to keep it. You need to guard it. Why? Because we're going to see in a little bit, Satan was going to infiltrate. Right? And what was Adam's job? Keep Satan out. <laughs> 
right? Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent right then and there, but he failed to do so. So you need the second Adam to crush the head of the serpent. But Adam was the priest king here, serving in God's garden temple and enjoying perfect, unbroken communion with God. Again, this is pre-fall or post-fall. In this world, this relationship that God had with Adam was as good as it's going to get in this world. Okay, Because Adam was walking and talking with God in the cool of the garden. Now we know the rest of the story, right? In chapter 3, Satan infiltrates the garden temple. He tempts Adam and Eve, and they sinned against God. Look at chapter 3 now. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but, the fruit, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now you get the blame game. <laughs> the man said, The woman <laughs> whom you gave to me, <laughs> she gave to me of the tree and I ate. I don't know what you're talking about, God. I was single. You put me to sleep. I woke up and I was married. I had no say in this matter. You picked anyone. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> kind of what it, what it boils down to. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, I mean, right there, you already see the fallen nature playing itself out. Right? They knew they were guilty. Why? Because they hid from God. Right? God is there. They know God is there. They hear the voice of God in the cool of the evening. And what do they do? They try to hide. They're not going to hide from God, but they try to hide anyway because that's what sin does to you. It, the shame of sin makes you want to hide. So they try to hide. And of course, then when God confronts them, they start to point fingers at everywhere except themselves. Adam should have said, Yes, Lord, I ate and I failed. I failed at the task you gave me to guard this temple garden that you have placed me in. I failed. But instead, what does he do? He says, the woman you gave me. And of course, Eve is no better. The serpent that you put in this garden. How did you let this serpent get in here? He made me. So the Lord God said, verse 14, to the serpent. So he starts with the serpent, interestingly enough. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle 
and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your, con- your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there you've got kind of the origin of the battle of the sexes, back when they knew there were two sexes. Sorry, I, could, I couldn't resist. Yeah. Oh, well, 150, I think you're, you're lowballing that one. <laughs> Uh, Verse 17, and then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have not eaten from the tree of which I command you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So there in a sense is the idea of death, right? God formed him of the dust, and Adam would return to the dust when he died. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. For the, and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So, you know, I mean, there God institutes the idea of substitutionary atonement, right? He kills animals in their place to cover their sin. They tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. What's going to happen to a fig leaf after a while? It'll wither and die, right? Animal skin's a little more permanent, right? And obviously an animal was killed in this place to, in their place really. So death did occur, but the animal was killed in their place so that they could have a covering. God, it covers them because their attempt at covering was futile. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest, he be put, now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there you have paradise lost. <laughs> Right? Paradise. Eden was a garden paradise, a temple paradise that Adam was called to keep and guard and watch over, and he failed. There's just no other way to say it. He failed in his task. Eve failed in her task. Satan was, in a sense, successful in the sense only that he is under God's leash anyway, but all of this is all part of God's plan to begin with. But they failed, and they were kicked out. In a sense, you could say they were excommunicated. They were removed from, the, from God's presence, uh, barred from, if you want to look at the tree of life as a sacrament, they are barred from the sacrament. That's kind of what we do in excommunication, kicking someone out of the church for their sin. And paradise was lost. The man is cast out of the garden, and he now... And the entrance to Eden is guarded by a cherubim, which is what you also see embroidered on the, the, the temple curtains in the tabernacle. They have cherubim on them, particularly on the, temp, the, the, the curtain that guards the way to the most holy place. There is a, temp, there is a curtain with cherubim on there to, to basically say, look, this place is guarded. 
You're only allowed in here once a year, Mr. High Priest, and only after you do a whole bunch of things before you come in here. Don't let anybody else come in here. And don't do anything that I have not told you what to do. So paradise is lost. Access to the tree of life is barred. So that's paradise lost. Now we can go back to Revelation 21. I don't want to do too deep a dive in Genesis because I'll probably be repeating myself in a few short weeks anyway, and then you'll be like, didn't you say this already? It's like, yeah, I did say this already. So I, I'm only, I've only got a few bullets in my gun. I only say a few, a few things that are clever every now and then. So Revelation 21. So that's Paradise Lost. Now what I want to look at is... Paradise restored. Paradise is lost. Adam failed in his calling to tend and keep the garden, and thus paradise was lost to mankind. His failure, in a sense, kicks into action God's plan of redemption. Right? This is, in a sense, the beginning of the plan of redemption because you have, in that curse, you have the promise of the seed that will come, the seed of the woman. You don't normally talk about the seed of a woman. You talk usually about the seed of a man. But here, the seed of a woman will come, and he will, he will do to the serpent what you, Adam, failed to do. So you've got the gospel promise there in Genesis 3.15. We're going to look at that next <coughs> Lord's Day as part of the Advent series. But you've got that. The plan of redemption is kicked into gear, and then really from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20 is the plan of redemption. You've got God's uh, work to restore, really, to get to this point. You've got God's work to restore paradise, to save a people, to um, restore and, 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 and uh, wash away the sins of his people. So Jesus, the promised Messiah, who is also the last Adam, he will do what Adam failed to do. And as such, paradise will be restored. So everything you see here from 21 in Revelation 21 to the end is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ did what the Father sent him into the world to do, you have paradise restored. Now, new creation... New Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, is not a back to Eden program. Okay? It is not just, all right, let's go back to the garden where everything was nice and pristine and clean and everything. It is not that. It is so much better than that. Okay? It is so much better than that. So that's why when I look at this passage, I want to look at the things that we see that are not in paradise restored and then the things that are in paradise paradise restored. So first, what is not in paradise restored? Well, the first thing that we see there in verse 22 is there's no temple. There is no temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Again, the temple is representative of God dwelling with his people. 
The temple has always been God dwelling with his people. All the way back, again, that's why Eden is considered a garden temple, because God was dwelling with his people. The tabernacle is God's home, if you will, amongst his people. Jesus Christ, who himself says, I am the temple, right? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is, in a sense, God with us. He is the Emmanuel principle in flesh. So the temple is God with his people. And that's fully realized now in the new creation. As we saw last time, two weeks ago, the new creation, the new Jerusalem is cubicle. It's described as a cube. And it's laid out, in a sense, like a temple. So the, the whole creation is a temple. And, and the reason it's a temple is because God is dwelling there in the midst of the new creation with his people. That's why there's no structure. There's no literal physical temple there. Because God is there dwelling with his people in the new creation. But John also sees that in the new creation there's no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminates illuminated it and the lamb is its light back in genesis when god started to create the first thing he creates is light right now you get the the atheists the skeptics they'll say but there was no sun yet how can you have light God is light. <laughs> God speaks the light into existence. The light was there. It's only on day four then that the light, in a sense, becomes attached, if you will, for lack of a better phrase. I can't think of a better phrase. It gets attached to the sun. The sun emanates light. But God is the one who creates light. So God, who said, let there be light, and, and light shone forth in the beginning, he is now also the light here in the new creation. This is, in a sense... A fulfillment, if you will, of Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. Isaiah chapter 60, starting in verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. So there you have it. You know, the prophet Isaiah foresees that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for light because, again, the Lord will be the light. He will be the source of light. So there's no temple. There's no sun or moon. There's also no night. You see that in verse 25. There shall be no night there. Now, night is not just the absence of light, okay? It is that. It's dark outside. Why? Because, well, we've rotated past where the sun can shine. We don't see the sun anymore. It's on the other side. But it's more than just the absence of light. Night is also symbolic of evil, wickedness, immorality. None of those things will be in the new creation. Why? Because they have been cast out. All of the wicked, all of the evil, all of the, the, the sin, they are in the lake of fire, right? 
Look again at chapter 21, verse uh, 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They are not going to be in the new creation. So there's no night there. And the light of God's glory, which shines in the new creation, as well as the glory of the Holy Bride, right? She shines forth with the glory of God as well. They sort of, in a sense, dispel the night. They drive the darkness away with their own light. Just a comment here, because I wasn't wasn't going to mention it, but you've got this idea here in verse 25 that the gates shall not be shut at all by day. There's no fear of any of the evil or wicked coming in here, right? You don't need to close. It's not like, you know, when I lived in Chicago, right, you've got to close your doors, lock all your doors, and make sure, you know, that you know, all the security thing is set up because, you know, you're afraid that somebody might sneak in in the night. No, no one's going to sneak into the new Jerusalem because anyone who could is in the lake of fire, for one. But even so, we, we learned last time that the gates are guarded by angels anyway, so who's going to come in? You don't, you don't need to close the gates here. So in a sense, there's, there's no fear of any evil coming in. There's no fear of darkness. There's no fear of any of that stuff being present here. Another thing that is not in Paradise Restored is anything that defiles. Anything that defiles. You see that um, in verse 27. But there shall be by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. And we saw that as I just read in chapter 21, verse 8. But again, none of these things that mark the pain and misery of this age are present. The new Jerusalem is described as a pure and spotless bride. And all of these things, again, they are, they are marks of the, of the current age. They are, marks of, uh, they, are, they are the result of sin and misery in the world. And that is gone, right? What does God do when, you know, at the end? He wipes away the tears from our eyes. So there's no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more any of that stuff. And then finally, um, in verse 3 of chapter 22, and there shall be no more curse. That should, that should garner an Amen. <laughs> I'll give you a run at that. There shall be, in the new Jerusalem, there shall be no more curse. There you go. The curse that was brought about by Adam through Adam's failure and the curse that marked the loss of paradise in Genesis 3 has now been rolled back. The curse that subjected the creation to futility has been rolled back. Jesus, in a sense, reverses the curse. He starts that, of course, at his resurrection when he defeats sin and death on the cross. He completes it here at the new creation when he sets up the the new Jerusalem and brings his bride into the new Jerusalem. And now, all this stuff, there is no more curse. Why? Because Jesus paid for the curse. He paid for the curse with his blood. He paid for the curse with his broken body on that cross. He bore the wrath of God. It has been paid for, as John will say, uh, Jesus will say in John 19, it is finished. No more curse. 
It's another thing that harkens back to an Old Testament prophet in Zechariah. Zechariah 14. Second to last book of the Old Testament, right before the Italian prophet Malachi. Sorry. I had an old pastor friend of mine who was a, he was Italian to the core. You know who I'm talking about, right, hon? Yeah. He was Italian to the core. And um, he, he joked, he, he made that joke. It's like, the, you know, the Italians even have a prophet. We have the prophet Malachi. Um, having, probably have no Italians here in, in Sutton, so it probably doesn't, doesn't, yeah, we need a German one, yeah. Actually, I was, well, here's a German joke, okay. I was listening a little bit this morning to, um, on Ligonier, the, the series Christianity in America, given by Stephen Nichols, who is a, he's a, he's a church historian. And he was just going through the, the progress of Christianity in America, and he's in the period of time where he's talking about how liberalism came into the church as a response to uh, the modern movement in the late 19th century. And then he started talking about the evangelist Billy Sunday. And he would say Billy Sunday would come up, and he would do these flashy things because Billy Sunday used to be a baseball player. And he would say, if you took hell and shook it upside down and looked in the bottom of it, it would say, made in Germany. Now, the reason he said that is because as I said, the church was turning, it was becoming liberal, and by becoming liberal, it was, it was denying all, uh, it basically it was denying the authority of Scripture, it was denying the miracles, it was denying the virgin birth, it was denying the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and all of that came out of German higher critical scholarship during that time. And what would happen is, you know, American ministers would typically go to Bible college here in the States, and then they would go overseas to Germany and get their doctorate degrees and then come back filled with their heads filled with this stuff. So when he makes that joke, that's what he means. It's like all, you know, anything that denies any of the truths of Scripture, you can say, you know, was born in Germany. Now, you know, so there's your German joke for the night. <laughs> but what does that have to do with Zechariah 14, verse 11? Absolutely nothing. So where was I? No curse. Zechariah 14, verse 11. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. No more destruction, no more curse, no more, no more uh, of anything, again, that, that has any kind, of, any kind of connection to the curse and to death. Again, all those things have been defeated. Death and Hades are in the lake of fire. And, and the, the wicked are there as well. And the bride is pure and pristine because the lamb has cleansed her with the washing of the word. So that's not what's in paradise or what is not in paradise. Now let's look at some of the things that are in paradise. The first thing there is that, well, verse 22 of chapter 21, the Lord God Almighty and the lamb are there. <laughs> They are there. It's not just that there's no temple. It's no temple because they are there. Ever since the fall, everything has been about 
The separation from the holiness of God. Again, you think about how, I hate bringing this, I keep feeling like I'm a broken record, but you keep talking about the temple and the tabernacle. What, how, why was it structured the way it was structured? To protect the people from the holiness of God. God wanted to dwell amongst his people, but he couldn't do so without the tabernacle. Because if he did, his holiness would destroy them. His pure holiness would destroy them. So all of these elaborate rituals and all of this protection was set up so that God can still dwell amongst his people and the people would not be consumed by the holy fire of God. What happened when Aaron's two sons went in and did something that God said not to do? They were consumed by the holy fire of God right there on the spot. Because God's name will not be profaned. God will be considered by, holy by those who will serve him. So all of, everything since the fall has been about separation from God. Not because God doesn't want to be among us, but because we can't be among God. <laughs> we cannot be among God and not be consumed. And that's why, that's what makes, again, the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so spectacular. As we saw this morning in, when we looked at John 14, when Jesus died, the way was open. All those things that blocked uh, access to God were, were done away with. The temple was, the, the veil was torn and the way was opened. And as Paul says in Romans 5 2, now that we have peace with God, we have access through his son, Jesus Christ. In the new covenant, in the new creation, I should say, God and the Lamb will be present among us, he, they will dwell with us. Again, you know, think of how the covenant language is, is phrased. God will be our God and we will be his people. And that's exactly what's happening here in the new creation. Another thing you see in paradise is the glory of the kings in verse 24. And the nations, or the Gentiles, of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Again, this is a, a fulfillment of several Old Testament prophecies. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 60. This time, verses 3 through 5. And you may be thinking, well, I thought all the kings of the earth were destroyed when Jesus came at the end. It's like, these are the believing kings, okay? <laughs> these are those, because again, none of them would be in the new creation. These are the, the, the rulers of the, of the nations who are in the Lamb's book of life. And what they're, essentially, this is kind of in a way a fulfillment of what's going to happen when, you know, uh, what, what do the 24 elders do at the very beginning of the book when they have their, their crowns? They, they cast their crowns at the feet of Christ. So in chapter 60 here, verse 3, the Gentiles bless Zion here. It says in chapter uh, 60, verse 3, The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather, they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. 
You can also see this in chapter 66, verse 12. Is the right verse? Let me see. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides. You shall be carried and be dandled. Dandled? dandled me <laughs> dangled maybe I don't know dandled on her knee again the idea here of the kings bringing their glory into the new creation the nations will worship and honor the one true God of creation and they show their honor here by giving up their glory to the glories of the Lord Another thing you see in paradise here is the elect. Verse 27, the end of verse 27, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only people populating the new creation, the only people populating the new Jerusalem will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, you know, it's like, well, how do I get my book, my name in that book? Well, you can't write it there yourself. Okay. Right, You remember back in chapter 20 when the dead are raised and they come before the white throne. It says books are open and then there's a book that's opened. And the books contain all of our deeds, all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. The Lamb's book of life contains the names that are written in the blood of the Lamb from before the foundation of the world. And it doesn't matter what's written in the books as long as your name is in the book then your sins are covered and you are, gain, you are granted entrance into the new Jerusalem. Not based on your labors, not based on your efforts, not based on anything you've done, but based sheerly and purely on the grace of God given to you through Christ our Lord. It's not to say that our works don't matter, but our works don't enter into... It's not like you can work hard and get your name in the book. Okay? It's not like, well, okay, I'm going to try really hard now... Starting today, I'm not going to sin anymore. Okay, and then that lasts for about, what, three seconds? <laughs> Maybe. And then, then you have to try again. And then you have to try again. You're not going to get your name written in the book by trying hard. Your name is there because God has put your name there from before the foundation of the world. And only those whose names are there will be in the new creation. A couple more things. Water of life, chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Again, just like in Eden, right? We saw the rivers flowing in Eden. Here you see the rivers flowing in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem. Uh, you have these rivers here. Uh, several passages I want to look at. You don't need to turn with me. You're more than welcome to, but uh, Psalm 46, which is a psalm of Zion. Psalm 46. We looked at this psalm about two years ago. But in, in uh, God is, uh, in, in Psalm 46, we are hearing the praises of Zion, God's holy hill. And in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the God most high. We see a, a similar thing in Ezekiel 47, in Ezekiel's vision of 
the, the new temple, so to speak, he sees a river flowing out. It, it becomes like an unstoppable stream as you continue reading. The healing waters here, you see this in Ezekiel 47.1, then he brought me, this is God now speaking, Ezekiel speaking, he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Even earlier in Revelation chapter 7 verse 17 Chapter 7, verse 17 of Revelation. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this idea of water. um, God is the source of this water. Just like what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4. He says, look, out from you will flow springs of living water. Or like he says on the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. Come to me, you who thirst, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living waters. God is the source of these. And and the fact that they're flowing from the throne means that they're flowing from God, who is the source of these waters of life, these waters that give life. And then that leads to the next one. The throne of God is there, because that's where the waters are coming from. From the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is the ultimate realization of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. We pray this, right? Every every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, here the kingdom has come. Here you have the final realization of God's kingdom. It has come. Interesting verse at the end of Ezekiel. Sorry, I'm flipping back and forth, but... The last verse of Ezekiel, 48 verse 35, All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. His throne is there. He is reigning and ruling now from the new Jerusalem. And finally, the last thing that is there is the tree of life. You see that in verse 2. An interesting way it's structured, right? You've got this river flowing down the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, you've got the tree. So I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but however it looks like, I'm sure it's very uh, spectacular to see. You've got this amazing tree, this tree which bears fruit, each fruit, uh, each tree yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, this idea of bringing healing, salvation, to the people, the tree of life has been opened. That which was barred from the original paradise when Adam failed is now back here in paradise, restored in the new creation. We will have access to the tree of life. And the idea here is that we will continue to be fed from this tree forever, and we will live forever. That's why there's no death. That's why there's no decay, no corruption. You know, this kind of fits in nicely what we've been looking at in the mornings in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You have to be uh, the the corruptible has to put on incorruption. The mortal has to put on immortality. And here we will be forever with the Lord. 
Well, just to wrap up here now as we come to a close, the beauty and the glory of the new creation is that we will have now direct communion with God in the person of the Lamb. That which was barred again from the, from the fall, access to God, unfettered uh, communion with God is now restored. And the Lamb will be there. The Lamb will be there in His glorified body. We will be there in our glorified bodies and we will have perfect, unbroken communion with the Lamb, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Again, what was lost in Eden is now restored. As I mentioned earlier, throughout human history, this idea of the tabernacle or the temple, is, it's a desire of God to dwell amongst His people, but again, it's, it was a limited, it was a veiled, it was a mediated uh, way of living with His people because you had, to, in order to commune with God, in order to do things with God, you had to go through elaborate rituals in order to, to, to be with God in order to make sure that you were not cut off from the people. All of that is, will be unhindered in the new creation. Notice, too, one thing, it just, it just popped in my head, too. If you remember in, in the original paradise, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? There's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the new creation. Why? There's no need for a test anymore. <laughs> no need for a test. There's no serpent in the new creation as well. And again, all of this is because the Holy Son of God came into a sin-stained world and took upon himself the stain of our sin so that we could be holy and clean by grace through faith. And beloved, if this does not encourage you in your daily walk, this does not give you hope, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what will. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what will. I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to make light of anyone's pain, anyone's suffering. I mean, th- our suffering is real. Our pain is real. Um, but as we saw earlier when in, in John's Gospel, 14, chapter 14, when the disciples were troubled, Jesus says to them, trust in God, trust also in me. And he wasn't saying that, like, you know, hey, buck up, have a stiff upper lip, you know, be a man, you know. <laughs> No, he was saying, trust in me. I've got this covered. I've got this covered. I, there's, nothing, there's nothing that anyone can do to snatch you out of my hand. There's nothing that anyone can do to make my Father love you less. Because my Father loves you perfectly in me. So trust in God. And, and have this hope before you, this hope of the new creation. This is our destination if you are in Christ. This is our destination. This is where we will be, right? And it may be tomorrow. It may be next year. It may be 100 years from now or 10,000 years from now. It doesn't matter. The point of the fact is that this is what has been promised. This is what Christ has promised to us. It was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. And is now we're shown its fulfillment in prophetic form, in apocalyptic form here at the end of the book of Revelation. This is as sure as sure can be because it is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. So in two weeks, right, December 4th, we will finish Revelation, Lord willing.